part of my job was to actually be the seventh fleet rabbi and I would literally fly out onto aircraft carriers and land on the decks of an aircraft carrier. Jewish. Well, thank you. <laughs> I am here today with my amazing co-host, Brian Schwartzman. Hello, Rachel. Hello, Brian. I can't even do like the uh, the, 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 the fake thing because I'm, I'm just nostalgic. Ra- Rachel and I used to be uh, in offices right next door to each other here at uh, RRC, and now Rachel has literally moved up in the world to the to the third floor. So now I can't even I can't third even third floor, wow. <laughs> I can't even pretend like there's animus because because there's there's nostalgia here. So. I know there's now we're so far apart and when I was talking I, I just moved actually to the development department, so I'm gonna be helping with fundraising and I'm not in the communications department, which is where Brian is. Um, and every time I was talking about the communications department I kept referring to it as we and I had to say, No, that's not us anymore more. Um, but I am very excited this morning that we have our guest, Rabbi John Cutler. So thank you so much for pausing your morning routine run to talk to us today. And yeah, and I'll just give folks a it's little... It's my pleasure. We, we, we're so glad to have you. And and, uh, and uh, full disclosure, Rabbi, Rabbi John and I know each other. Uh, we, we, he's even been kind enough to take me, uh, to take me running a couple times in, in the suburbs of Philadelphia with his, uh, with his wonderful dog, Izzy. And um, let me just give a little bit of an introduction. We, if we gave a full introduction, we'd take up the, um, the whole podcast talking about, about Rabbi John's um, credentials. But um, he is recently retired uh, captain in the U.S. Navy Reserve, where he, he served for um, over 25 years, uh, and, and bringing him to uh, places well, like— Well, actually, 32 years. 20... I have to correct that if I can. Okay. So, 20, 23 years. 32 years. No, 32. 33 years. Okay. 32 years. 32 years, yeah. We're, we're going to have to edit that. 32. So <laughs> we're going we're gonna to have to edit that. But uh, for 32 years in, in, um, in, 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 in the Navy, bringing him to places like the Philippines, Japan, uh, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Iraq, uh, Djibouti, um, Uganda, where he where he uh, interfaced and and had extensive visits with the Ugandan Jewish community, and he's got an equally impressive resume um, in in civilian rabbinic work. He served a number of congregations, including uh, including Beth Israel of uh, Congregation of Chester County now, and um, he's he started his own uh, his own havara. He um, so if we have a question about about the military, Jewish life, whatever, John John can answer it. So we, we we're, uh, we're we're thrilled to have you here. And we should well, also thank you very much. And we should also um, add that you're also an RRC graduate. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's the I think that's why you're actually interviewing me for this podcast, right? And it's uh, 30 years this year, correct? Yeah, dude, 7th was 30 years. Wow. Wow. So you were al- I graduated. So you were already in the midst of your military career when you graduated from rabbinical school, how did you balance that? Actually, yeah, actually, it was two years. Uh, what it was is that it was a student, it was called a chaplain candidate officer's program, where I went in the summer of 1985, which at that time was my uh, modern year. Do they still have that? Um, I think they modern actually... Modern year, contemporary years? 
they actually started changing that up, but I, I understand. Um, so this was kind of close to the end of the program. Um, RRC's rabbinic program used to focus on air, uh, periods of time. So you started from the biblical period in your first year, all going all the way up to the modern era. Um, that that system's changed within the past couple of years, but um, so this was towards the end of uh, rabbinical rabbinical school for you. Correct, exactly. My last year in rabbinical school, I joined the Navy. And it was just the summer obligations. And I went up to uh, Newport, Rhode Island for chaplain school in 1985, and then returned back in 86. And then I graduated in 1987, and from there I went right to the Philippines. So you're correct. It was two years when I was a rabbinical student, and then 30 years uh, in the Navy itself as a chaplain. So I guess I want to I want to start out by by asking now now that your your retirement ceremony is in, in the very recent past I mean the 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 large majority of of your your military career I mean you really had to hide the fact that um, that you were a gay man that you you were in a in a relationship and and I, I was wondering if you could contrast that that part of your military career with what it was like to to live more openly and be able to sort of be able to be your full self and 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 serve your country at the same time well how long do you have for that <laughs> about four hours what do you think yeah something yeah we could do that that's the that's the ideal podcast length right exactly. i was gonna say well we try to keep it light well, here of course i guess i i need to ex- i need to explain why i decided to join the military knowing very well Actually, in 1985, I came out, and the first person I spoke to was Linda Holtzman. Mm-hmm. And she was really helpful in guiding me in dealing with in the whole process of coming out. And in 1985, it was actually RC. Then it was that year they officially recognized gays and lesbians as that could be admitted into the rabbinical college. So even when I started rabbinical college, it wasn't officially recognized. And there wasn't even any statements about it. And I remember the debate that went on among the students and the faculty at that time to the point that there's one professor, and I don't mean to digress, mm-hmm. but there's just some history here. There's one professor, Ivan Kane, I don't know if you know the name, mm-hmm. okay, who put the biblical year was so adamantly opposed against admitting gays and lesbians. I mean, it was a real bone of contention at RC. So I was living through that year of the whole debate going on. So you're going through that kind of debate going through school, and then you enter into an an institution. I I hate saying that about the military, but you're going into a career where, up until very very recently, and even then, some of the you know some of that culture is still kind of slowly beginning to change. That's not an institution that's particularly uh, gay friendly either. No, it was not gay friendly at all. Matter of fact, that institution would have kicked me, actually potentially would have discharged me as an administrative discharge where I would have never received any of the benefits that, uh, as an honorable discharge, such as medical benefits or any pension or, or so, even possible jobs because of you. So... Yeah, so you're probably asking, why did I do this? That's a lot of strain to really push on when there's these institutions and people around you that don't accept you for being yourself. Right, and a big part of it, I mean, the fact is that the difficulty piece was that I, 
you learn as a gay man, at least I did, how to hide and what to be public with and what to be private with. And you just really know, I mean, you have to become really, really acute in knowing how to navigate that and or to negotiate that. And that's sort of one of the skills that I really learned is how to, as they say, using the metaphor, navigate those shawls of uh, how to be private and how to be public. I guess then it goes back to the reason why I really joined the, mil- the Navy specifically was one is that I saw it as a temporary option. I didn't see that I would end up actually being there for 32 years. Uh, so as a temporary thing, I said, I could do this for a couple of years. I could, I mean, I look, I've, it was hidden most of my entire life, or really a good chunk of my life, so I can hide for a couple of years in the military and then come out and then figure it out at that point. Being a gay person, uh, you figure it out pretty much like day by day on how you're going to negotiate all of this. So I saw the Navy as a temporary stint because what I really wanted to gain from it was a couple things. One is I love the travel piece of it. So when they said I had an opportunity going to the Philippines for two years, I said, when am I ever going to get an opportunity to really be in Asia and live there and know the culture and still be part of uh, the military? And the big piece behind that, too, is that I really do believe in service. Uh, was to serve the Jewish military personnel who are in the four flung places of the world. Because they're, when you're looking at the Philippines, I was the only Jewish chaplain for the entire Southwest Pacific and Indian Ocean. Wow. So I traveled extensively throughout uh, Southwest Asia as well as the Indian Ocean. So I would be fly out to aircraft carriers. I landed on aircraft carriers. I took off on aircraft carriers. I went on the smallest ships. I served the personnel both at Clark Air Base in the Philippines, as well as Subic Bay Naval Station and a lot of little small installations throughout. And I cannot tell you the amount, you know, of joy or appreciation that Jewish personnel had when I went to visit them. I'll never forget one time I went out, again, part of my job was to actually be the Seventh Fleet Rabbi and I would literally fly out onto aircraft carriers and land on the decks of an aircraft carrier. Wow. I've heard that's a stomach-turning experience. Yeah, it really is. I mean, because of all the G's and everything else that's involved with it. But I'll just give you one example. of I was out on the USS Constellation, which was an aircraft carrier, I flew out on there, and there was the Catholic chaplain, and I'll never forget him, Chaplain Brown, the Roman Catholic chaplain. It was a time of Hanukkah and Christmas. This is a carrier has 5,000 personnel on it. Mm-hmm. 5,000. I mean, it's a city. Wow. And he came to me, and he said, and the reason I went out onto these ships was because Jewish personnel will not identify as being Jewish because they don't feel very comfortable with it. The only time they'll identify being Jewish is if there's a Jewish chaplain present. So here's Chaplain Brown, a Roman Catholic, Steve Brown, a Roman Catholic priest, and he says, I can't find any Jews out of the 5,000 personnel on the ship. You know, I said, that's impossible. There has to be some Jews. He says, okay, come with me. And he was brilliant. I mean, it was a really funny thing. So we went from bow to stern, and we went to every space in, in the sh- on the ship, and he would be handing out Christmas cards. And then there were some people say, oh, I don't celebrate Christmas. And then he said, Rabbi, I have one for you. <laughs> so, at, <laughs> so at the end of like a couple days, we're going across the entire ship. We actually were lo- able to locate 26 Jews. 
that the 26 Jews didn't even know each other, but we brought them together for a Hanukkah party. We had a big Hanukkah party celebration where the the Mesdak made latkes and we had a traditional Hanukkah celebration with the menorahs. And ever since then, these 26 people were then organized, these 26 Jews were then organized to have weekly Shabbat services. And they would get together once a week and do a service. So this is the reason why I joined the Navy is because to have these type of experiences, to be the conduit, to be the, you know, the mediator, to bring people together. Did you see a, a change in your time over in in your, you know, several decades in the military? Do, do, do Jewish uh, servicemen and women today feel more comfortable in, in displaying their Judaism or is there still kind of a little bit of that hidden aspect like you were talking about? It's still a hidden aspect, and I don't know if it's so much quote-unquote anti-Semitism, because I, don't, I, I never really saw that publicly displayed in my 32 years in the Navy, which is really amazing. I mean, it really, maybe on a, you know, subtle level, it's there, on a more subtle level, it's there, but I never saw it overtly, any anti-Semitism. But what it is is that Jews, yeah, they still feel to a certain extent as an outsider. It hasn't changed that much, that you still need the you know Jewish chaplain to be out there. One of the things I was thinking about, um, I actually, my father was actually army, and he was an officer in in the army, and I actually grew oh, up. Oh really? Okay. I actually grew up right next to a military base in southern Arizona, almost right on the Mexican border, and I grew up there most of my life. We would go to services on this chapel, and I was wondering if that was actually something that you had experienced because we never quite experienced anti-Semitism flat out. It seemed as if some of the chaplains didn't quite know what to do with this Jewish population. Um, Exactly right. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head, you're right. Because it's the culture is so different, and it's not so much the religious faith, I think, is a part of just the culture. And you're right, they don't know what to do. I found that to be pretty, you know... Actually, just this past year, I went back to my hometown, and we had high holiday services on the military base. My mother was a volunteer volunteer lay leader. And uh, um, there was a bit of a dispute between us and the chaplain because they were actually trying to move us into a different room with uh, crucifixes all over the wall. And then the room wasn't sanitized. And that's something that I didn't think that that was something blatantly anti-Semitic. It, it just seemed like an, an oversight of, oh, wait a minute. I, you know, this is a this is a different group of people. The, the rooms have to be sanitized in a certain way. I wasn't sure if that was something that you had experienced or did you have to change the culture in places you have been in order to make sure that there is uh, a fair environment for for all different kinds of religion, even besides just the Jewish groups? You actually, Rachel, bring up an excellent point because that's one of the major functions. It's not just serving Jewish personnel, but you really made up a very good point because what a Jewish chaplain really has to be is to be the the voice, the other voice that's not Christian. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, you're right. I mean, there many times I have it to go up to Christian chaplains and say exactly what you what you experienced, because I then became the voice of not only the Jewish community but 
because I was only only one at usually the major installations, I became the voice of the Muslims. Right? He actually had a deal being a voice of the Wiccans or whatever voice I was was that of the minority faith. So it wasn't just Jews. So in other words, you're right. Many times I would have to go into a chapel for and use it as a Jewish space for services, and then I would have to really deal with the command chaplain or the chaplain and say, hey, look, you need to do X, Y, and Z. I would say 99% of the time I found them to be accommodating. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a lack of the awareness, because you're right, when you're in a dominant cult, Christian culture, you're not aware of minority faith groups. And, you know, just using another example, when I was in Iraq, I was the command chaplain for al-Assad, which was a base of 18,000 people. And I was also, in conjunction with that, the wing chaplain for the 3rd Marine Aircraft Wing. In other words, I was the most senior chaplain for, one of the most senior chaplains for the Marines in, in western Iraq. And as the senior chaplain, there was a group of Wiccans who came and said that we want a space and we want literature. And I provided them with space and literature. Some of the Christian chaplains opposed the Wiccan. I mean, they're not really, you know, any religion. I said, no, they have a right to worship the way they need to worship. And because of understanding the sensitivities of being a minority faith, I can then empathize with all the other various minority faith groups out there. And that's a very important role that a Jewish chaplain plays beyond just ministering to the Jewish personnel and their family. One thing that's sticking with me is, is you mentioned earlier that this you saw this as something you would do for a couple years. So I, I was wondering what kept you in it and how did you muster the spiritual strength to to sort of live in, in, in a hidden fashion, so to speak. Okay. So getting back to that, getting back to the original point, is that so that's the reason I joined the Navy was, again, uh, to minister to Jewish personnel, the minority. And then again, later I learned so that, not to, just going back to, to be the voice for the Jewish personnel as well as for other faith groups. Okay. So then from Philippines, I went to uh, Camp Lejeune with the Marines, and then I went to Desert Storm, and I was the only Jewish chaplain for the entire Marine Corps over in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait uh, during Desert Storm. And that's a whole other story there in and of itself. Uh, but getting back to specifically your point, then I was transferred, then I did my last tour in Okinawa, and I realized at that point I needed to get out. Because that was I put five years into the Navy, and in order to live the life that I wanted to as a gay man, I would have to get out of active duty because the consequences of being found out were just too uh, pervasive. I mean, I was always living in fear that I would be found out, but uh, CNIS, you know, uh, the whole, you know, you have this great program of uh, criminal naval investigators, right? Naval Criminal Investigative Services, like the TV program. Yes. Okay. What they did is during that time, they also were doing witch hunts against gays and lesbians. So if they found out or even any inkling that's because someone tells you that you're gay, then they would come and do a whole investigation. And then I decided I can't live under this cloud any longer. So I decided to stay in the reserves. Because the reserves, I still, it was once a month I would do my, my drill. You know, that's easy to be hidden. And then... Uh, so that was easy to hide as a reservist. And then I would have my civilian life and my private life. And I made sure to keep the two very separate for 30 years. For, you know, 27 years, I kept, the, kept it very separate. 
or until like 2011 when the whole ban was lifted. But again, getting back to your point, it's a lot of, I would have to, you know, on active duty and even in the reserves, I'd be very careful about the pronouns I used. I would be I would be very very closed about my personal life. People would ask it, and I would change the subject. So you have to be you know I was very vigilant about how I said what I said, and you're constantly monitoring yourself to make sure that there can be never in, any inkling. There were a couple of chaplains I really did who I really trusted, and I came out to, and I they were very supportive. Only a handful of chaplains. The worst the worst experience I had was in Ferry and I, my husband and I, we've actually been together for 16 years. We met in 2001. And within that period of being together in 2008, I was in Iraq for an entire uh, 13 months. And we were separated for 13 months. But he was totally invisible to the point that if anything happened to me, because he's not next to the kin, obviously, my brother would have found out first. And then my brother would have had to tell Terry that if anything ever happened to me. But that, the other piece, the other side to this whole thing about being found out was that if anything ever happened to Terry back in, you know, Philadelphia, I mean, this whole area, and I, and I could not go home on emergency leave because he wasn't recognized, which means I would have had to come out at that point so I can get home. Plus, I would have had to pay for my own airfare back home because he was not officially a dependent. No, I mean, that scared me. I mean, that was the one that really where that's the stuff that I lost sleep over. What's interesting is that there's there's this big fear that you had because the consequences were so great should should you ever be found out. Yet, when you said, um, I needed to get out, you didn't just leave military life. You actually went into the reserves instead. Why? Why didn't you just leave the whole thing, you know, leave the Navy altogether? Why did you want to at least stay in the reserves? Well, one is because I've already invested five years from a very practical point of view because I was going to get a pension. Two is I really, I mean, yeah, really. And I also got, I mean, from a very practical point of view, I would have gotten a pension, which now I'm going to get after 32 years. Two is the medical coverage through TRICARE is excellent. So I got all my health benefits through the military. And three was the fact that hopefully at one time it would change and I need to stick it out. But outside of the practical pieces, there was also the really the sad personal satisfaction that I gained from being a Navy chaplain, helping people, doing service, and also the other piece of my, from my own point of view, my own, you know, selfish point of view, is this extensive amount of traveling that I still was able to do. Because as a reservist, I was, went to Guam, I went to Japan, I went to Europe multiple times. So from that point of view, it was really, I mean, the benefits were still outweighed any of the necessary, the risks at that point. But what I did was mitigate the risk of being a reservist. And t- and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, in, in the end, at your retirement ceremony, I mean, Terry was, was honored and, and, and recognized as part of the, the ceremony. Is that is that right? I'll tell you one thing. That was the highlight. I would say if, that was one of the highlights of my life, if not the highlight of my life is that after 32 years and after 2011 when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed, that this was worth it all. This one moment on April 30th when I retired from the United States Navy and the chief, deputy chief of chaplains, an admiral, 
who's a Southern Baptist, and I know personally, okay, got up there and recognized Terry as my husband. That was the pinnacle. Right? That was the highlight of everything of my entire career. And then at the end of this ceremony, it's a very, very formal ceremony, where you have uh, whistles and bells and the whole thing, and it says that United States Navy chaplain, I mean, United States Navy captain retired, where I walk down the center aisle where I'm getting salutes from officers, and it's and the saying was, United States Navy chaplain retired with husband. Wow. Well, I mean, we're, we're at, I mean, a lot of folks would consider this a difficult a difficult time now, politically, socially, certainly the feeling we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, was that was that just proof to you in 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 some sense that that things can change, things can get better because really dramatic difference in in certainly the culture of 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 the military of society at large from 1985 to now. I mean, I guess I'm was that a moment where you really felt things things can improve? Absolutely. And especially the interesting thing is that all the social, you know, changes first take place in the military. It's not in society as a whole. When you look back at the history of the military, full integration was back in the 1950s, way before the Civil Rights Movement. Women being fully integrated into the military was in the 1960s and the 1970s, before women were fully integrated in many aspects of society. Now when you're talking about, which is fascinating, right now at this very moment, in 2017, transgender is now being fully integrated and being implemented right now, the whole issue around transgender. And look at the fights that go on in society about this, in the civilian world. That's actually a big contrast from what I thought it would be. You would think that you know, the military is such an old institution with that's set in its ways, and that's a completely different perspective, that somehow that is a cutting edge to social change. Believe it or not, I know that is the this is the misconception about the military, that the military is really at the very forefront of social change. At the same time, yeah. you, you could argue that um, society as a whole, American society at least, is more distant from the military than you know than any time in in, in the recent past. I mean, with an all volunteer service, uh, I mean, fewer of us new you know new people who served abroad. Um, you know, it was it was right. it was something maybe we we encountered more through through the media than direct personal relations. I mean, what what I mean. What would you What would you want? Um, you know the 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 folks who might not have that direct direct personal relationship. What you know? What would you want them to know or think about the military? I mean, I mean, I feel like some some folks just kind of write the military off as 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 you know as 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 whatever you know whatever they they want to project on it. But but I mean. I guess that's not that's not the clearest question I've ever asked. But but do you do you see yourself as a? As yeah, I understand what you're right. saying. I think what you're saying is the fact is that there's a lot of misperceptions about the military because everything you know military equals war, and it really doesn't. I mean, the one thing about the military, my again my experiences of being there for so long, is is that everything really equals trying to really prevent war. Uh, I mean, we have plans in place, and there's con- I mean, there's constant plans in place about if there's a war that breaks out. 
but there's always a lot of pushback on really trying to, you know, to have a war. Ultimately, it is up to the President and the Congress of the United States, which is up to the people of the United States. The thing that I, again, am very impressed about my experience in the military and just seeing it as a whole, you know, the military is not a separate entity from from the population because the population voters Congress the president can be very influenced by their constituents and then the military is at the service of those institutions so for example you know with Iraq and going into Iraq if there was a bigger outcry from the population like in Vietnam maybe we would have gone into Iraq I mean, look what happened with Vietnam. I mean, the whole fact is is that when the people started protesting, then there was forced negotiations from, you know, with the Vietnamese. And we go on and on and on. So it's not an entity that makes decisions in and of itself by itself. Legally, it can't. So what you get, and this is, what you get is a real level of high-level professionalism in the military and respect for the institutions you know, governmental institutions, respect for the law, and it's really it's very much governed by uh, the law. I mean, it gets really tedious because it becomes so bureaucratic after a while, <laughs> but it's still foundationally governed by the law. Unlike when I was in Africa, because I was in Africa for 13 months, and I saw the way, you know, and I lived in Djibouti, as uh, Brian was talking about, but I was also the director of religious affairs, and I traveled extensively to Uganda, Tanzania, Ethiopia, and Kenya. And I observed militaries in those countries. And those militaries do not function like the United States. It's not about the law. It's about the whims of whoever the leading president, quote-unquote, is at that time, or the whims of the general. But it's not about the, it's not about the overarching understanding respect for the law. Does that help answer your question? It it does definitely, and 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 I just feel like we could, we could uh, we could go on and on and on, um, and 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 I'd love to. There, there's so many questions I want to ask. Um, we're we're supposed to be a little a little a little lighter our, our podcast, but we've definitely been on on the heavier side today because of the the subject matter. So I wanted to ask something that I hope was at least moderately lighter, and that that's as as um, okay. as, as as somebody who's. Um, devoted years to to running and spending four or five six six days a week out out on the trails um i'm wondering do you do you find a spiritual aspect to to running and is that something you you try to share with others actually that's where i come up with my sermons (laughs) (laughs) And and this was also a practice that you that you did um, throughout your time in the military. And um, you you ran marathons while you were in Iraq, which I think is incredible. And this is something that that you've maintained as well in your civilian life. So what does what does running do for you? Well, I mean, I. It gets me outside and not, you know, so that's the big thing. I mean, I hate running in the gym on the treadmill, so it's not the sake of running for the sake of running. It's multiple reasons. One, in the very beginning when I started running, I run with friends, so it becomes a real social occasion for me and a real connection with friends. I've had running partners. Actually, I had a went out to lunch with a friend of mine 
uh, Alan Curry, which is quite interesting, who is a Presbyterian minister. And we met at Forbidden Drive 40 years ago. And we've been, and we ran for 15 years. And then he moved out of this, the state. And then he just recently moved back in. And now he can't run because he has back problems. But, you know, he became a very close friend. And then I ran with another for, friend for 18 years. And then I ran with some friends for five or six years. So the big thing is, is it's a big social piece for me. So it's not that I run alone. I mean, it's only recently that I'm running alone. So I'm just trying to get Brian to become my new running partner. <laughs> You're trying to groom him. <laughs> I'm grooming him. I need a new running partner. Because <laughs> all my other running partners have, like, I stopped running. You, you wore them all. I have to make that public profession. So that's why I said every Sunday, you know. If I fall into that role, I, I don't know if I bring the same spiritual heft as, as some predecessors, though. So <laughs> I don't know, John. It sounds well, like you have a... You, it sounds like you have a tendency to wear out all of these uh, running partners. <laughs> well, but the good thing is that it takes like 18 years to wear them out. <laughs> so at that point, I'll be... <laughs> so he has a little time before I can wear him out. So I can book my knee replacement for about 10 years from now? Um, yeah, 18 years from now, you'll 18. be okay. All right, all right. To do that. Okay. So I, I do have one more question. I know we're definitely going a bit long, but... Um, one of the things I think is such a fascinating transition, and I know that it tends to be a bit of a challenge, I think, in military life, because here you were um, moving all over the world, and you had a very strict system that you were working within, and now you are a civilian, you are working in a synagogue, which is a whole bunch of bureaucracy, and um, it, it's its own animal. So how did you make that transition, and how um, how did you make that transition from that military life um, to a civilian quiet life in, in the suburbs of Philadelphia? Well, I've actually been a congregational rabbi since 1992, when I got out of the military. So I've had four congregations since 1992. Uh, so I think to answer your question, in 1992, the transition was very difficult for me, because I thought I could tell my congregants what to do and when to do it, and they would listen to me. And I found <laughs> that they don't. <laughs> And then I learned through a lot of trial and error on my part and learned how to really, again, to negotiate uh, between civilian and military. I will may, I've publicly admit that there were many times where my military piece of looking at chain of command and giving, you know, expecting people to do things because I said so, that I sort of, it, it bleeds into uh, my civilian life. And then sometimes I had my hand slapped by that, and you learn through the experience. The but on a very on a different note, on a serious note, what I really learned from the military and the civilian life is is that I learned a lot about myself and to take things slowly and not to and to really respect other people and to hear what their voice is and. Because of the diverse community and the diversity and the pluralism of the society that I lived in, in the military, I was able to really bring that into the civilian world. So just for one example, tonight, matter of fact, I, now we, I started in Chester County in my synagogue 
uh, a ministerium where we have two Lutheran churches, an Episcopal church, a Roman Catholic church, an Islamic center, and my synagogue. Tonight we are at St. Elizabeth's Roman Catholic Church across the street from my synagogue, where actually all these churches and the synagogue is sponsoring an iftar dinner for the Muslim community. Mm. And they're going to do, in the Roman Catholic Church, they're going to do their evening prayers, the Muslim community, and we'll have a panel discussion on Judaism, Christianity, Roman, uh, Judaism, Protestant, Roman Catholicism, and and Islam, we're having a panel discussion, followed by prayers, and followed by an Easter dinner, where each community is providing meals, and a whole meal for the Muslim community. does sound like this is something we need more of, so thank thank you for for doing this. And, uh... and the thing is, I can't imagine not doing it anymore in my life, because I was so influenced by the military. Uh, the poor, uh, the interfaith dialogue that takes place every single day. I mean, that's the thing about the strength of the military. And again, this is another major institution that doesn't happen in the civilian world, where chaplains work with from various faith groups have to work with each other on a day-to-day basis. And you have to create these spaces that are that because you have limited spaces, you have to make sure that the shared space that you have is something that's um, fair and equal for everybody. Right. But I mean, as a chaplain, for example, when I'm a Jewish chaplain, I have to work on a day-to-day basis. When I walk into the chaplain's office, there's a Catholic chaplain. There's a Southern Baptist chaplain. There's a Nazarene chaplain. I mean, so the fact is a Mormon chaplain. So you learn to work with people from various different faith groups. And the overarching thing that is, it's not because of their faith group, but it's who they are as a person. And that's what you really get to connect with. I definitely agree with Brian. I feel like there's so much depth to the things that you've learned and the experiences that you've had. It's like you've lived so many lifetimes and you've seen such major transitions, even, um, you know, socially within the military and um, constantly being on the, you know, front lines of debates and um, and it's great that you were able to end your mil- your military career with the celebration that everything uh, for everything that you worked for, and now um, you, you you don't have to hide. And that's it's amazing all of the work that you've done. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. We we, we both thank you for your service and for uh, spending some time on your on your day off with us in our in our in our podcast studio and. Um, uh, we uh, maybe we'll we'll uh, we'll have you back in season season four, right? When, <laughs> well, and when we've got when we've got well, one million good. listeners, <laughs> and then we can also see how um, how this grooming process for Brian being your running partner. I would love I I would yeah, love. Yeah, that's to- what I'm really right. I had to confess, <laughs> make a public confession now that that was my really that's my hidden agenda, which is not hidden anymore. <laughs> no, that's good because now the wider world can now make sure to um, support you in your goal and. And make sure that we right. that we encourage Brian to get out there and run with you. And, and Izzy is your dog. Yeah, Izzy's my dog. See, see, now you have to go out there with John and Izzy. It's it's committed now. It's in, it's in the public. This is this is right, public exactly. knowledge. When the dog wasn't hunting rabbits, he, he, she turned around and looked and checked to make sure I was okay because I was I was falling back. So, <laughs> so do- I, I owe a debt to the, to the dog. She did. Yeah. 
<laughs> Again, thank you very much for spending. You're part of the pack now. <laughs> oh, see, now the dog, the dog, the dog says that you're part of the pack. It's it's definitely a circle a of trust or something. Right now you're now you are committed. So we're looking forward to when you start taking Brian out on marathons. That's the next goal. Well, I would no try comment. a 10k first. <laughs> oh, 10k. Not even you're not even doing yeah. a five K with him. You're just jumping right to ten. Yeah, we're just jumping to a ten K, yeah. And we're just you can't see this, but yeah, the color from his face is just kind of draining a <laughs> In my defense, it's about uh, ninety outside and, and we're we're in an unair conditioned studio. That that's that's the reason. Right. Yeah. The, yeah. That's what. That's what you. You can continue to say that, even though we're. You shouldn't really lie in a rabbinical school, Brian. Yeah. Well, my my nose might have just hit the wall or something. Grown. Um, this was this was fun, John. Thanks. Thanks again, and thanks for sharing just just sure. a smattering of your experiences. That was my pleasure.